Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teals, Continuing Church of God. I want to talk a bit about Nazarene Christianity. Now, we've mentioned from time to time there's basically two groups of Christians. There's either groups associated somehow with the Greco-Roman Protestants or something that's, some group that's not. And that's pretty much it. There's really no other option. Now, as far as the world's concerned, the other group is the only way. Okay. There's the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox, uh, the Protestants, uh, etc. And anything else is just some weird cult or whatever else. Now, we know that in Luke 12.32, Jesus said the church would be a little flock. Hated by the world, by the way, Matthew 10.22. Uh, persecuted, Matthew 10.23. Jesus said only a relative few would find life in this age. And in Matthew 2.23, Jesus was called a Nazarene. And basically, there were some groups throughout history that called themselves uh, a Church of God. Sometimes they use the term uh, Church of Christ. Typically, they've taught that they've had apostle ties to the apostles and basically have continued out throughout, throughout history. Now, most who profess Christianity, and even many who don't, basically accept that the New Testament church started on the day of Pentecost around uh, 31 AD. And they tend to range from, 30, from 27 to actually the latest 37. But basically, after the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, the disciples began to preach. Thousands were added to the church uh, at that time. And for a while... Jerusalem was the main basic place. Uh, this is where the apostles met together. Three of the four times the, uh, the Bible shows that uh, Paul conferred with Peter, it was in Jerusalem, and the fourth time it was in uh, Antioch, which is just south of Asia Minor, in north of Jerusalem. I want to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When we look at what, passes, what calls itself Christianity these days, they don't seem to grasp a significant statement here that uh, Paul wrote. And it is, 1 Thessalonians 2, starting verse 13. He said, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you... Uh, this is to the Thessalonians. Thessalonica is in uh, northeastern, yeah, northeastern Greece. Uh, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. You were welcomed it, not as the word of men, but... As it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the Church of Rome, because they used the Latin Mass. No, the Church of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. And on that Latin Mass comment, by the way, um, there's uh, somebody who knows, somebody who works for me, keeps insisting on this Latin Mass as the, the tradition, and this is what needs to be done. But even Roman Catholic sources tell you they didn't start to do that until centuries later. Okay, nobody had the, the Latin Mass, which they keep arguing about right now, back and forth. Anyway, shortly after the death of the Apostle Peter and Paul, which we think was somewhere in the 60s AD, uh, we don't really know for sure, but we suspect that was the case, there were major changes that happened in Jerusalem. And... Uh, Sometime after that, the Apostle Philip uh, settled in Asia Minor. It has been reported there, probably no later than 67 AD, the Apostle John uh, was in Ephesus, and he led the churches in Asia Minor. 
Beginning around 66 AD, there were revolts by the Jews, and that resulted in a lot of the Christians fleeing. Um, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, first century historian, said, uh, at that feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a sound as of a multitude saying, let us remove hence. And there's basically some tradition or rumor, if you will, that the church was warned to flee Jerusalem uh, during the 60s, during the revolt. And a lot of them a lot of them do, and that the last of the Church of God members were probably out of Jerusalem by, by the time it was uh, taken, which was, uh, looks like uh, Titus took it in between April and September of uh, 70 AD, and I think it was in August that the uh, temple was burnt and destroyed. Now, even according to a Roman Catholic source, early Christians weren't involved in fighting at the time. And I mention that because this is really an obvious difference between those who believe in the gospel of peace and those who do not. So here's something from a Roman Catholic source. During the War of 70, none of the believers in Christ appear on the scene, nor are any of the places inhabited for them mentioned as war zones. Oh, wonder why. Did they not receive the revelation that they're supposed to uh, put crosses on the outside of their shields and go out and kill people? That didn't happen until a demonically influenced guy told people to do that centuries later. So no, they weren't doing that. And therefore, the Catholic source continues with, therefore, we may assume that Christians remained aloof from the war on account of their new faith. That was the change. Okay, Christians realize, no, we're not supposed to be warriors. And so it's really easy, if you're trying to look for the true church, or wondering about the true church, how to eliminate most of them. Because according to various sources, there supposedly are around 2 billion Christians. Well, if you get rid of all the ones whose faith allows them to go out and kill people in warfare, that brings it down to, uh, eliminates 1.99, probably another 9 or so, <laughs> A billion of them. Continuing this Catholic sources, we may therefore assume that the faithful were indeed disturbed as a result of war, but they weren't so involved as to compromise their community. And that's what we have to be careful nowadays. We're seeing civil unrest occasionally. Uh, I actually had to hear it a couple of times in the last year where we are. Uh, it's not so, so bad. There's one intersection uh, between Royal Grande and uh, Grover Beach, that I guess they decided that is the place. So there'll be, the most I've ever seen is probably about 50 people, 10, 12 on each corner, holding up, jumping up and down with a sign or yelling, whatever. Uh, but that, that's, that's the big, worst, we, worst one we've had. Uh, but it may get worse not just for us, but everybody else. Now, even though the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox tend to think Rome has a primacy above the other seas, what they call seas, apostolic seas. The Orthodox Church recognizes about Jerusalem, says the Church of Jerusalem, as the mother of all churches, during the first days of Christianity, consisted of the center of life. From it, the holy apostles went to visit all nations and uh, renounced the whole world. 
then it says the Lord's city was completely destroyed in 70 AD by Titus, resulting in great and tragic consequences to the uh, Jewish and Christian lives. Now I want to read something from the Catholic historian Eusebius. James, the first that had obtained the Episcopal seat in Jerusalem, so they're saying James was the first one, was some succession over there as, as a bishop or overseer, after the ascension of our Savior, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by revelation vouchsafed to prove men before the war to leave the city and to dwell in the town of Perea called Pella. So what, what Eusebius, 4th century historian, is saying is there were Christians who said they got a warning to leave. But we don't know what document he had from this. And this is one of the problems with church history. We've got this guy who had a lot of this stuff. And he wrote what he wanted to write and a lot of this other stuff. We don't know if it's actually in the Vatican archives uh, or if it was destroyed or he decided some of these things Emperor Constantine should not see. And they, somehow they got lost. Now let's talk about Nazarenes. Now the faithful who claim who've left Jerusalem for Pella call themselves Nazarenes, by the way. And it, you don't have to go there, but Matthew 21, verse 23, it says, Jesus, he shall be called a Nazarene. Seventeen times in the New King James Version of the Bible, we see the uh, expression Jesus of Nazareth, probably because Jesus used to live there. And the New Testament uses the expression Nazareth, Nazarene, or Nazarenes, uh, 31 times. Now, some believe that the term Nazarene means something other than just one from Nazareth, but it uh, could be those who believed in Messiah or the people of the branch. Now, I want to read something from the 19th century Protestant historian uh, Philip Schaff. He wrote, A portion of Jewish Christians, however, adhered even after the destruction of Jerusalem to the national customs of their fathers. He's calling it national customs as opposed to the Bible, by the way. That's, he's referring to stuff from the Bible. But he doesn't want to say that because otherwise you might want to look further into this. And propagated themselves in some churches of Syria. Syria is just north of Jerusalem and just south of Andy, uh, of Asia Minor down to the end of the 4th century, under the name of Nazarenes, a name perhaps originally given... Hold on, let me take this clip off. Uh, as one of contempt uh, by the Jews to all Christians as followers of Jesus of Nazareth. So they united the observance of the Mosaic ritual law with their belief in Messiahship and divinity of Jesus. They used the Gospel of Matthew deeply mourned the unbelief of their brethren and hoped for their future conversion in a body for a millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Sounds like Church of God doctrines. But they indulged no antipathy toward the Apostle Paul. They were therefore not heretics, but stunted separatist Christians. Stunted. No. Jude, verse 3 says, Contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You're not stunted if that's what you believe. Stunted because they didn't pick up the Trinity, they didn't switch to Sunday, uh, they didn't adopt Christmas, they kept the biblical holy days, they imitated uh, Jesus, 
and the Apostle Paul and their practices, which is to keep the holy days, not even clean meat and stuff like that. They call them stunted separatist Christians, which is what we're considered to be. I've mentioned this before, but I read the uh, rules as far as being part of the World Council of Churches. Not that we were looking to be a member, but I read something that triggered my interest to look even further and found out when they were founded, uh, they only want Trinitarians. That was what they did, I don't know, back in the 60s, early 60s. Uh, then I found something in this century, same thing, nope, just they want Trinitarians. And a year or so ago, the Vatican issued a new book about reaching out to others. And if you read between the lines, they only want Trinitarians. So the rest of us are considered uh, extremists. And here we're calling stunted separatist Christians. They stop at the obsolete position of narrow and anxious Jewish Christianity. They stopped. The Apostle Paul commended those in Thessalonica for following the Jewish Christians. Christians in Judea. But these ones stopped at what? Going past what this book said. That's what they stopped. And they shrank to an insignificant sect. In the minds of the world, that's what we are. We are insignificant. The Roman Catholic Saint Jerome says of them that wishing to be Jews and Christians alike, they were neither one nor the other. They weren't popular with the Jews in the first few centuries. If you want, you can go to Acts 24, verse 5. I'm only going to read that one verse. The Jewish authorities didn't care much for the Apostle Paul. And here's what they said about him, Acts 24, verse 5. For we have found this man a plague. He wasn't carrying... COVID Delta number 74 or whatever they're going to call it next week, next year, whatever. Found this man a plague. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So the term Nazarene originally applied to all who professed Christ. And the guy who's called the, quote, father of Latin uh, theology, a guy by the name of Tertullian, late 2nd, early 3rd century, reported that the Jews called various professors of Christ uh, uh, Nazarenes. So this was uh, fairly well known. There's a Protestant scholar uh, by the name of Harvey uh, Lewis, and he thought that the Jews thought the Christians were a bit secretive. So the title Nazarene was given by the Jews to those strange people outside of their own religion that seemed to belong to some type of secret sect. Okay? So the Jews said they weren't Jews, but the Protestants say, well, they were really Jews, but, but they weren't really Christians. According to a... Uh, Roman Catholic historian, Greco-Roman historian by the name of Epiphanius. For not only the Jewish children 
cherish hatred against them, but the people stand up in morning, noon, and evening, three times per day, the Jews say, may God curse the Nazarenes. So, they weren't really that popular, but Epiphanius wrote some other things, so let me read a few things he wrote. All Christians were called Nazarenes once. Aha, so he got that part. They were so-called followers of the apostles. So-called? They were the followers of the apostles. They dedicated themselves to the law. However, everyone called Nazarene, Christ, Christian Nazarenes, as I said before, uh, this, this appears to be the accusation against Paul, and that's the one I read just a moment ago. For they use not only the New Testament, but also the Old. And by the way, so do the Greco-Roman Protestants, but they only use small parts of it. You know, okay? They've eliminated great portions of it. Since the Nazarenes, they accept the resurrection of the dead and that everything has origin in God. Only in respect they deliver, differ from the Jews and Christians. With the Jews, they don't agree because of their belief in Christ. And with, with the Christians, because they're trained in the law, circumcision, the Sabbath, and other things. So he didn't consider them uh, Christians. This heresy of the Nazarenes exists in Berea, in the neighborhood of uh, Syria and Decapolis, in the region of Pella, and the so-called uh, Kokobi in Hebrew. From there, it took its beginning after the exodus from Jerusalem to go away since it would undergo a siege. Because of the advice they lived in Perea, having lived at that place, there, the Nazarene heresy had its beginning. Now, you understand what he really said? He really said, these are the people who were faithful in Jerusalem, and they left. Okay? But it's a new heresy that just sprung up. Now, a lot of people don't know what the word heresy means. It just means change. To be the original faith is not a change. It's not a heresy. The fact that people are saying it was a heresy, the ones saying that, or heretics, or apostates. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have some minor difference of opinion on various things, and yet no two human beings agree 100% on everything. But uh, the others just went way beyond. Way beyond. So much so, they couldn't consider. Couldn't consider they possibly were, were real Christians. Now, there are modern scholars like uh, uh, Dr. Larry Hurtado, he realized that the Christians who claimed to be Nazarenes were considered to be in most were considered to be proto-orthodox. Let me talk about that expression for a moment. That one just cracks me up. Proto-orthodox. In other words, when they use the term proto-orthodox, they say these people weren't really heretics, but they didn't know enough about things that were going to happen another 100, 200 years ago and change all the doctrine. They use the term proto-orthodox. So when they start using these 25 cent words on you, they don't know what they're talking about. If they're ortho truly orthodox, and I don't mean Greek orthodox, I mean biblically orthodox, early orthodox Christians, true Christians, they weren't proto-orthodox. They were the true Christians. Anyway, so here's what Larry Hurtado wrote. Nazarene Christianity had a view of Jesus fully compatible with the beliefs favored by the proto-Orthodox. 
Indeed, they could be considered part of the circles that made up the proto-Orthodox Christianity at the time. Okay, proto-Orthodox. That's because they all taught the Father was God, the Son was God. They did not teach the Holy Spirit was God. They were all called proto-Orthodox by these people because they can't find anybody who was Orthodox. Well, yeah, they found two. They found this guy by the name of uh, Valentinus who had all kinds of really weird ideas, so he was denounced by Polycarp. And then they had this guy named Montanus who came up with his own weird ideas. And Both of them were considered apostates by the Greco-Roman churches, so they, don't like, they can't call them proto-Orthodox. <laughs> they were the only ones that came up with their idea about the Godhead. It's been contended that Nazarene Christianity was the dominant form of Christianity in the first and second centuries. Okay? The dominant force. You had Epiphanius a couple of hundred years later saying this is a new heresy. It sprung up. Well, they came from Jerusalem and they, you know, they fled before the Romans destroyed it. But it's a heresy. The devotional stance toward Jesus that characterized most of Jewish Christians of the first and second centuries seems to have been congruent with the proto-Orthodox devotion to Jesus. The proto-Orthodox binitarian pattern of devotion. So what this Trinitarian scholar has said, early Christians, Nazarenes, People who went to church on Saturday, the people who didn't eat unclean meats, the people who kept Feast of Tabernacles, were not Trinitarian. They thought the Father was God, they thought the Son was God, they thought the Holy Spirit was the power of God. And this is not some new idea or new invention. In a Binitarian view of the Godhead, God began one family with two beings. Binitarians believe the Father is God, and also the Son, who's also called the Word, is God. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Godhead, according to the Bible, is a family which someday those who accept God's way will be part of. And that was the predominant view of early Christians. And some scholars know that. But they just pass it on. Because, come on, there's 1.99 billion people, supposedly, who believe in the Trinitarian view, and uh, you've got the Jehovah's Witnesses who are Unitarian, we'll ignore them, because the, the Bible's not Unitarian, uh, early Christians weren't Unitarian. Uh, as a matter of fact, since I mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses, um, I remember one of the times uh, they came to bother us, and uh, I said, you know, we agree with you guys on a few points, such as we do agree that uh, you know, apostasy hit the church, now, and we also agree that the, some remnant of the true church exists throughout history. That's the difference between you guys and us. We can prove it with our people. You can't find your religion. You hope it existed. You think it existed. You can't point to it. Your literature doesn't show it. You can't trace it. But we can. And they don't know what to do with that, so they leave. <laughs> It's amazing that this stuff is really out there. Now, yes, I've got multiple doctrines, but you didn't have to have doctrines to figure this stuff out. The information is actually still out there. It's there, 
But when you, people look at church history, everybody, they look at it in different views. Uh, there's one guy, I've mentioned him before, he's actually very famous. A few years ago, he had books in all the bookstores. Now, not so much. His name is Bart Ehrman. Now, he was a former evangelical type, believed in the Protestant evangelical movement, I guess. He had the audacity to study church history with somewhat of an open mind. Somewhat. He threw up his hands. He said, hey, what we've got now isn't really what started. We had no reason to think this group was going to make it. He says there were these differing Christianities just threw up his hands. Now in the Church of God, how can we do this? And how can you do it? Because you don't have to be a massive scholar to do it. If you believe this book and the basic doctrines, all you have to do is look at who believed the same doctrines originally. And you can figure this out. And you can find out that they hold what we hold, the doctrines, in the continuing Church of God today. Now, people like to mix this up with other groups when they look at it. And there was a scholar by the name of Ray Pritz, and he noticed this as well. So this is going to be a little technical, so, but I'd still like to read what he wrote. The Nazarenes were distinct from the Ebionites and prior to them. In fact, we found it is possible there was a split in the Nazarene ranks around the turn of the first century. The split was either over a matter of Christological doctrine or over the leadership of the community. Out of this split came the Ebionites, who could scarcely be, excuse me, scarcely be separated from Nazarenes on the basis of geography, but can be easily distinguished from the standpoint of Christology. All right, let me explain that in a different type of English here. There were some strange groups who still kept the Sabbath and claimed to be Christians. But the Ebionites didn't believe Jesus was God. The Nazarenes did. Okay? Um, but every now and then you'll run into scholars, and I keep getting papers from various scholars all the time through academia at EDU, who will lump them all together and can't tell the difference. But what gets me, some of these scholars, so-called, is they talk about how things changed and all this came together and the separation and all this stuff and it's like, don't you guys understand what you're even saying? And they don't. God hasn't called them and they don't seem to be interested in the truth and they go their way and it's, it's uh, kind of absurd. Now, I mentioned about uh, Jerusalem and some of the Nazarenes left after the revolt in the 60s A.D., and there was another revolt as well. And this one was a bit rougher uh, as far as Jerusalem ended up being. And uh, this, I'm going to read something from Eusebius. Uh, this is around the year 135. Under the siege of the Jews, which took place under the uh, Roman Emperor Adrian, there were 15 bishops in succession there, this is in Jerusalem, all of whom are said to have been of Hebrew descent and to receive the knowledge of Christ in purity. So they were approved by those who were able to judge of such matters and were deemed worthy of the episcopate, in other words, to be the chief overseer. For their whole church consisted of believing Hebrews who continued from the days of the apostles until the siege which took place in this time. They know that the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem, overseers of Jerusalem, for until 135 A.D., 
all kept the Sabbath. They all didn't eat unclean meats. They know this. And they're saying this the church was kept in purity. Then how can it be a heresy to go along with what they taught? Now, there were a couple of things that went on. I guess I should mention this. In, in 70 AD, Jerusalem itself was actually uh, destroyed uh, physically. Uh, the Romans uh, did in, basically got rid of everything they could, uh, and things changed, and the Nazarenes left. Now, I've gone through some of this uh, before, but after they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, they still left some of the uh, uh, stones there. And some of these, these stones are about this big. Pretty heavy to, to move. And I've seen them. These were part of the temple complex. And they were still out there. And according to a, a Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Barzil uh, 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 Pixner, it looks like some of the Christians took some of those stones and they built the first uh, Christian church. Uh, this Catholic writer calls it, a uh, uh, Roman Catholic writer calls it a Judeo-Christian synagogue known as the Church of the Apostles. So there were still some of our people there. But I mentioned that Eusebius said the church was pure until 135. And so what happened around that time a few years before, actually, a Jewish guy by the name of Simon rose up. And he decided, and some of, some of the Jews decided, he was the Messiah. And so they decided to revolt against the Jews. And a lot of people followed them. Uh, it was because of him that the Jews changed their chronology, by the way. Uh, of about a month or so ago, or within the last, actually within this month, uh, the Jews said it, it became the year 5782, which it's not. It's more like 5992 or something. Uh, we don't have it precise, but we're not off 200 years like the Jews are. And they did this on purpose to try to point certain prophecies to make this guy to be their Messiah. And there's kind of a difference in the outcome of uh, the true Messiah and their Messiah. The true Messiah, he brought a message of good news and salvation. Their Messiah, roughly 600,000 or so Jewish men died in the revolt. And supposedly twice that number of women and children perished because of the famine that they caused. And Emperor Hadrian decided to take a different approach. Instead of having had done before with General Titus to destroy everything that was there, Hadrian was a bit more practical. It takes a lot of work to build buildings, particularly back then. Well, we'll keep all the buildings up. We just won't let the Jewish back in town. You can be a Jew. You just have to act like a Gentile. And you can call yourself Christian. You just have to act like a Gentile. And this came, I believe, a couple years after this started to happen. Now, you may or may not know that within the Roman Empire, the Jews kind of got a special dispensation, if I could use that term, and not in the Protestant sense. Basically, if you were a peoples that the Romans conquered, you had to, uh, you could 
believe in your own gods, that was okay, but you also had to sacrifice the emperor. Uh, that was fine, as long as you did that. But the Jews, because it was considered such an ancient religion, they got to be exempted. So they didn't have to, they didn't have to do that. So the, there were some unfaithful in Jerusalem prior to 135. And here's some writing. This is from an Arab source. And one of the reasons I like occasionally you find some stuff from Arab sources is that the Roman, Greco-Romans didn't end up with some of this material. It's an Arab source. It said the, uh, the Romans ruled over them. The, I'll call them Greco-Christians, as opposed to our kind. They used to complain to the Romans about the Jews, and they wanted uh, their pity. The Romans did pity them, and this happened frequently. And, and the Romans said to these type of Christians, between us and the Jews, there's a pact which obliges us not to change their religious laws. We're just stuck. We can't do anything. But if you would abandon their laws and separate yourselves from them, praying as we do while facing the east, and eating the things we eat, and regarding as permissible that which we consider such, you know, don't say that our lifestyle is immoral. Okay, just put up with us. If you'll do that, we should help you make you powerful. And the Jews will find no way to harm you. On the contrary, you'll be more powerful than them. But they wanted one thing. They wanted to get the original copies of the Gospels. So these semi-Christians came and asked our people for them, which showed, by the way, that the semi-Christians didn't have them. They did not have them. So I'm not quite sure where they sprung from. They could have sprung from Simon Magus or some descendants of his, because that's what I've read from other historical sources. I'm not going to go into there. And they say, well, give, us to, give, give your originals to us, and we'll give them to the Romans, and then we'll all be happy. But these said to them, you've done ill. We're not permitted to let the Romans pollute the gospel. And given the favorable answer you gave the Romans, you've departed from our religion. We therefore are, have no longer can associate with you. So these are people they probably thought were interested, they were sort of interested, but when they did this, people, you crossed the line. We were obliged to declare there's nothing in common between us and you. Which is why, by the way, in the continuing Church of God, we are not part of the ecumenical movement or the interfaith movement. And so the Christians presented the others from getting access to the gospel. And there was a, a quarrel taking place. And the companions, our people, fled the country. And if you go through more on the history, you'll see that's what happened around 135. And a search was made for them, and some of them were caught and burned. So some of our people they did catch, but others were able to get out in time. And I find this interesting for quite a few reasons, because it also helps confirm something that the historian uh, Gibbon wrote. So let me read some things that uh, he wrote about this kind of thing. And I know I've gone through some of this historical stuff uh, in the past, but I'd like to make it clear, it's not just our opinion. This stuff is the way it really happened. So when you see the world the way it is now, don't think, oh no, it wasn't like that before. Yeah, it was a lot of ways. <laughs> they had to separate. So anyway, here's what, uh, uh, what Gibbon wrote. The Nazarenes retired from the uh, 
ruins of Jerusalem to the little town of Pella beyond the Jordan, where the ancient church languished about six years in solitude and obscurity. They still enjoyed the comfort and they making frequent devout visits to the holy city with hope of one day to be restored there. And religion taught them love as well as to revere. But under the reign of Hadrian, the desperate fanaticism of the Jews filled up the measure of calamities. The Romans, exacerbated by their repeated rebellions, exercised the right of victory with unusual rigor. Okay, this time, okay, <laughs> we're going to do something about this. The emperor founded, of the name of uh, Elea Capitolina, a new city in Mount Zion, which we gave the privileges of a colony and denouncing the severest penalties against any of the Jewish people who should dare to approach his precincts, he fixed the village and garrison outside to enforce his orders. The Nazarenes only had one way to escape this. They had a choice. And some elected a guy by the name of Marcus to be their bishop, a prelate, a leader of the race of the Gentiles, probably a native of Italy or some Latin province. At his persuasion, the most considerable congregation renounced the Mosaic law and the practice which they persevered above a century. So given same for over a century, people were keeping the Sabbath and all this kind of stuff. But when it came down to their economic livelihood, you can't live in Jerusalem unless you give this stuff up. A lot of them said, okay, well, you know, I hope Jesus was going to come by now. He didn't come, so, you know, it's okay. And they gave it up. When the name and honors of the Church of Jerusalem had been restored to Mount Zion, to these frauds, the crimes of heresy and schism were imputed to the obscure remnant of the Nazarenes which refused to accompany their Latin bishop. If any of you are in the old worldwide Church of God, you know that some of us, or most of us here anyway, all of us, any of us should be here, would not follow the uh, leader who decided that, oh, we needed to be like the Protestants. Okay? It's been said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does seem to rhyme quite a bit. <laughs> Now, what's interesting about uh, all these groups of stuff trying to get together is that when the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia was written back in 1907, they didn't have that quite in mind back then, even though it was sort of a goal of them. Here's what uh, they wrote. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. The shortest-lived apostolic church is that of Jerusalem. In 130, the holy city was destroyed by Hadrian and a new town... It lay a Capitolina erected on its site. Well, it's, they got that off. It was 135, not 130, as far as we can tell. We have more records since then. But they said, okay, that was it. And there's no more apostolic succession in Jerusalem after 130, 135. We agree! But in their talks to the Eastern Orthodox, they're willing to take They're, they're willing to overlook all that, uh, by the way. Anyway... Uh, a 20th century historian by the name of uh, uh, Salo Baron wrote, Hadrian, according to rabbinic sources, means what the rabbis wrote, he prohibited public gatherings for instruction in Jewish law, forbade the proper observance of Sabbath and holidays, 
and outlawed many important rituals. So basically, you could go to Jerusalem, just, let's, just, just don't do what this book says. Okay? The Pied Piper, if you want. Yeah, you go. Just, 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 you know, just give it all up. And the Eastern Orthodox seem to understand that, even though they claim succession through there. They wrote, in 135, the Roman Emperor Hadrian builds on the ruins of Jerusalem a new Roman city, names Elea Capitolina, and permits the Christians to come back. However, the Jewish are not permitted to come in town. This didn't say the Jews, it said the Jewish, which I found kind of interesting. So the Christians that were allowed to come in were the Latinized ones, if you want to call them that. And the Orthodox don't understand that's what they're saying. And their people don't seem to get it. Uh, Gibbon also wrote, it's re been remarked with more ingenuity than truth that, in the, that the virgin purity of the church was never violated by schism or heresy before the reign of Trajan or Hadrian, about a hundred years after the death of Christ. Right. They kept our faith, our religion, for, for, that, for that century. Now, they considered that they had, did have succession. I want to read something here. This is from uh, Shlomo Pines. That these Jewish Christians were not such Judaizers as arose throughout the history of Christianity and still arise among Gentile uh, Christian, Gent Christian populations, but preserved an apparently uninterrupted tradition which bore witness to their descent from the primitive Holy Jewish Christian community of Jerusalem. Writing, as certainly they did at a time in Christianity, the Romanized Christianity, which they bitterly opposed, was triumphant in the greater part of what we call the inhabitable part of the earth they still regretted. By saying they had uninterrupted tradition, they said the same thing we've been trying to tell the Protestants and the Catholic, Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox. We did not just spring up in the 21st century. We did not just spring up in the 20th century. We did not just spring up from the Millerite movement because we were even part of that in the 19th century. We can show leaders throughout history. People who kept the Sabbath, generally speaking, kept the Holy Days, avoided unclean meats, had various views similar to us in salvation and about the Godhead, etc., etc. Uh, the uh, Anglican Archbishop uh, Lightfoot wrote, the church at Elea uh, Capitolina was very differently constituted from the church at Pella, the church of Nazarenes, and the church of Jerusalem. Not a few, doubtless, accepted the conqueror's terms, content to live henceforth as Gentiles in a new city of Hadrian. But there were others who hung to the law of their forefathers. Okay? The time is going to come when the beast power is going to rise up. And people will have a choice. Get, if you're either going to do it that way or they're going to kill you, basically. We have to pick God's way. Now, Lightfoot also said the churches of Asia Minor regulated their Easter festival, it's actually Passover, 
by the Jewish Passover, Christian Passover, without regard to the day of the week. Right, we did it on the 14th, the first day of the month of Nisan or Abib. Those, but those of Roman Alexandria and Gaul observed another rule, avoiding even the semblance of Judaism. And according to the uh, late Seventh-day Adventist scholar Samuel Bakayoki, they all did this because they were afraid. They were afraid in Rome that they didn't want to look like the Jews to Adrian. So that's why there were changes. But everybody in Rome, by the way, did not apostatize that. And this is an error sometimes throughout church history. We've heard uh, in uh, the Radio Church of God, Worldwide Church of God, okay? everybody in Rome was not bad. Okay, uh, We're pretty sure up until 2nd, 3rd centuries, we had people over there. Uh, we weren't predominant after probably the mid-2nd century over there, early to mid-2nd century, but we still had people over there. I mentioned this scripture before, but I'd want to quote it uh, directly, and that's uh, Jude, verse 3. Because the Bible pretty much suggests we weren't supposed to change doctrines. Beloved, Jude writes, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all means we're not supposed to keep changing it. Yet, people changed it over and over again. Uh, in the 3rd century, there were very few real Christians in northern Africa, uh, which would include Alexandria. Origin of Alexandria noted there were two groups he considered to be Ibionites, or Ebionites, one who believed in the virgin birth, and that would be the Nazarenes, and those who did not. So I, I don't need to read the quote, but basically, he's also saying, yeah, there were two different groups, uh, basically of, of, of Sabbath keepers. And that's been another issue uh, throughout history that I've noticed, is that particularly in the British Isles, there were Sabbath keepers, but there were a couple different types of Sabbath keepers. Uh, there were some of our people, and then there were others uh, who just went along with pretty much the, either the Roman church or the Protestant churches, except for the fact that they went to church on Saturday. Uh, I, I talked about Passover, uh, and I mentioned the British Isles, and there was a, a, Catholic, a Roman Catholic abbot in the British Isles named Wilfred. He was trying to justify the change of Passover in the 8th century. And it, it's amazing, and this is from the writing by a guy known as the Venerable Bede. Far be it for me to charge John with foolishness. He literally observed the decrees of the Mosaic Law when the church was still Jewish in many respects. At the time, the apostles were unable to bring a sudden end which the, which the law that God had ordained. Huh? It gets worse. And the guy actually says that, you know, um, uh, Easter should be done at night. Should have been done at night, but they don't do that anymore. A Roman Catholic saint in the 2nd century by the name of Irenaeus said, The church of Ephesus, founded by Paul, having John remaining there among them permanently until the times of Trajan, was a true witness of the tradition of the apostles. It's there over and over again. Uh, I'm finding a source here that talks about that they were uh, uh, still doing foot washing over there. 
And I don't want to go more into the whole Passover side of this. But the reality is what we believe was the original faith. Um, a Jewish historian, by the way, uh, sometimes called Rabbi Ifak, it's I-F-A-A-C. Not even sure how to pronounce that. He wrote, Polycarp was born late in the lane of Nero and he became a Nazarene. And uh, there's a document called the Harris Fragments that said that Polycarp got the canons from John and people considered him to be, to be faithful. According to the historian Irenaeus, Polycarp related everything in harmony with the scriptures. And he's considered to be a great saint by the Greco-Romans. My wife Joyce and I actually visited a church built supposedly for his honor in uh, Izmar, uh, Smyrna, uh, in uh, Turkey now. Except it's a Roman Catholic church and they don't believe what he believed. They teach against what he believed. I uh, once uh, wrote something for Wikipedia regarding uh, the canonization of scripture and claimed that people like the Nazarene Christians and such believed that they didn't need various councils later to determine what those books were. I even quoted the late Protestant scholar James Moffat, who wrote, Was not the apostolic canon of scripture first formed in Asia Minor? Was not Asia Minor ahead of Rome in the formation of the Episcopal apostolic ministry? Real, the real thinking upon vital Christianity for centuries was done outside the Roman church. And the reality is, Rome was confused about what the books of the Bible were. Yet, those of our people were not. I have found no evidence that our people uh, accepted, for example, the shepherd of Hermas as possibly being part of the Bible. Uh, you can read it, but I wouldn't. I've read it. It's, it's, I'm not sure how anybody could read that and think it ever could have been possible, part of the Bible. But... Some of the proper Romans did. And there were some other things they accepted. Without accepting, by the way, some of them wouldn't accept the book of Hebrews, 1st, 2nd Peter. Uh, uh, Jude was one of them, and also they had problems with Revelation. Okay. I want to uh, read uh, something about uh, the Nazarenes from uh, Jerome. He said that the Nazarenes uh, do well in observing the precepts of the law, keeping the Jewish Sabbath. Now we know God made the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2. There weren't any Jews then. There exists a sect among, a sect among them in the synagogues of the East, not Syria, Asia Minor area, which is called the, the sect of the Minyae, which is even now condemned by the Pharisees. The adherents, the adherents to this sect are commonly known as Nazarenes. They believe in Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. And they say, He who suffered under Pontius Pilate and rose again is the same one we believe. They're most pestilential heresy. Okay? But, you know, it wasn't just Jewish Christians, by the way, who were keeping the Sabbath. The, he's actually a famous Protestant uh, historian by the name of Lotteret. He wrote, For centuries... Even many Gentile Christians observed the seventh day or Sabbath. Okay? So they admit it was going on for centuries. And it continued through centuries, except people like him went the other direction. 
In the 5th century, a certain Eusebius of Alexandria speaks of the observance of the Sabbath, apparently in parts of Egypt. And he's okay. He quotes certain things from the Nazarenes, uh, uh, how the Nazarenes understood that there were uh, dis, uh, distant tribes. By the way, the Nazarenes understood that there were lost tribes of Israel. Now, I don't know how they taught it. Okay? And I'm sure the time they were there, one, they didn't have telephones and things like that. And secondly, uh, they didn't have display the type of wealth that we see uh, in Western and Northern Europe. <laughs> okay? And of course, it happened over in the Americas. But they knew that they were distant. Uh, we've got an article at the cogwriter.com website about Nazarene Christianity were original uh, Christians Nazarenes. And so I'm not going to read all of uh, uh, all the quotes regarded uh, that Jerome has about them. But essentially, they held uh, a Church of God doctrine. Now, one of the reasons people don't know about the history of Christianity, one is not taught now. But one of the other reasons is that I mentioned a guy by the name of uh, Eusebius, and there was also Epiphanius, and they had access to records we don't have anymore. Now, some of those records would have just disintegrated in time with the humidity. Uh, the only reason, by the way, we have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that are older is they were in an environment with like no humidity. Uh, but in regular places where it rains every now and then, more often, uh, you get humidity. Anyway, I want to read something about this type of reporting from a Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Bellarmino Bugatti. Now, I never knew Bugatti, but I, knew, I know somebody who actually did know him. Uh, but anyway, that's the whole matter. Here's, here's, he, Bugatti said that the reporting about Nazarene Christians, non-reporting, was intentional. Epiphanius also witnesses the situation talks about various holy sites since the Seneca, that's the original church building I mentioned before, is not mentioned it should be of prime importance. In other parts of the place of little importance he mentions. Bugatti writes, we must admit the omission is intentional. We guess he did not want to record it because he held the Judeo-Christians as heretics. So we've got the reality that people know that things weren't reported about. Eusebius, the church historian, was a historian for Constantine. And he was pretty specific of putting together things he thought Emperor Constantine would like. Now it was helpful for us, by the way, Eusebius was not a Trinitarian. Okay? That's why we have all that information. And the reason we have stuff about Passover, by the way, back then, is because that was a controversy. And Eusebius, in my opinion, correctly concluded, since this isn't the first time this has come up, we probably should talk about the history of this for, for this great meeting. Because if we don't, people are all going to bring up the history because other people know about that. But other stuff he's pretty selective about. I mentioned before a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman, who basically became an agnostic and atheist after he looked in church history and threw up his hands. There was another guy who was a, an atheist, uh, became one. Uh, he turned against what, what I tend to call Constantinian Christianity, and he, but he wrote the, 
that uh, there's only one place in church history that made sense, he said, as far as apostolic succession. Direct tradition of the apostolic succession, which connects primitive Christianity with the disciples of Jesus, we must go to Asia Minor to do this. Most of the books in the New Testament were written in Asia Minor to or from uh, Asia Minor. And one thing I find interesting from a scholastic perspective, and you'd think this would get particularly the Protestants to think about this, and I've quoted this Protestant scholar before, uh, Harold Brown. He wrote, It's impossible to document what we now call orthodoxy in the first two centuries of Christianity. Impossible. They were not going to church on Sunday. I mean, they started to do it in the second century, some of them. They were not Trinitarian. Uh, they didn't teach you went to heaven upon death, by the way. There's a bunch of other things, but those are just a few that I'll just mention. Then later, uh, the Roman Catholic scholar Brigatti wrote that uh, people like Gregory of Nyssa, 5th century or so, could not understand the mentality of the Judeo-Christians because they thought they had to do what the Bible said. He couldn't get it. So that the same situation of two opposing communities appears in the letters of St. Gregory of Nyssa. And he himself was not considered to be a true Christian by some who held the three resurrections. Aha! Three resurrections. I mean, that was not an invention of Herbert W. Armstrong. Uh, no, it was not. The millenarianism. Okay? In fact, we could have a millennial reign of Christ. I'd like to read uh, something from an 18th century Protestant writer by the name of Moshim. The Nazarenes are not reckoned by the ancient Christians among heretics. No, our people were not heretics. For those who bore the title of Christians among the Greeks were among the Jews called Nazarenes. And they did not esteem it a name of disgrace. And it was okay to be called Nazarenes. They rejected the additions to the Mosaic ritual made by the doctors of law and by the Pharisees. That's right, they were like us. And one of the quotes I really like to go into, this is from Dr. Pritz, said, the earliest heresiologists, the people writing against heresies, did not include the Nazarenes for the simple reason they didn't consider them to be heretics. We arrive at this important conclusion, the lack of polemic against the Nazarenes until the 4th century, when Emperor Constantine and the company rise up, does not show them to be a late phenomena. They didn't just pop up. We didn't just pop up. People tell us, say that we just did. We did not. They don't want to believe. They do not want to believe that we've been around all this time. Rather, it shows that no one until Epiphanius considered them heretical enough to add them to the older catalogs. No one until Epiphanius felt it necessary to include the Nazarenes, even though they existed from early time. I mentioned this uh, before. You know, the Nazarenes kept the Feast of Tabernacles. They said it helped picture the millennium. And one of the quotes that I'd like, I think I will close with this quote. And this is from that Roman Catholic scholar and priest, Bugatti. He said, in conclusion, regarding the Nazarenes, both their Saint Epiphanes and Saint Jerome 
have nothing to condemn them for except for the observance of customs forbidden by the councils. What does that mean? The councils that said, oh, you can't keep Passover on the 14th like Jesus and the Apostles John and Polycarp and Philip. We know they all did. And other people you consider to be saints like Melito and Sagris uh, and Thracius and Polinarius and all these guys, you know, early guys. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't uh, be able to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and the Days of Unleavened Bread, which was by a synod of Laodicea. And, of course, the other one, which was one put together by Emperor Theodosius in 381, the Council of Constantinople, where he said, you can't call yourself Roman, you can't call yourself Catholic if you don't accept my view of the Trinity. So the reality is, yes, throughout history, there have been Nazarene Christians, people who held Church of God doctrines, the same doctrines we hold to this day. Yes, people call them heretics. Yes, they're called separatists. But you know what? They were there. And they were faithful. And we're still teaching those same things. We still hear the same criticisms today. I heard it said once in a sermon, Satan's not much an original thinker because we found the same kind of thing works generation after generation. But don't you fall for it. The Apostle Paul said, you know, we know Satan's methods. Don't fall for those. Our version of Christianity is the original version of Christianity. It has existed throughout history. And we represent that today. We all need to live our lives as representatives of true Christianity. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.